This is The Road Less Travelled, presented by Nikki Shea. To this week's edition of The Road Less Travelled podcast, it's Nikki Shea in the seat with you this week. We're into season two, halfway through season, halfway through season two. This is episode number 24 of season two of The Road Less Travelled. A warm welcome to you if you're a regular to the podcast. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, Welcome. We hope that you enjoy tagging along with us as we take on tours and trips of adventure, uh, prospecting, a little bit of history and just checking out what's out there, whether it's an overnight stay, a long weekend, a weekend, a week, month, whatever it is, get out there and enjoy Australia. The Road Less Travel podcast, you can listen to us on Apple, on iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts and Spotify. And if you're doing a search for us on Google, just simply search for the Road Less Travel Podcast with Nikki Shane. That's where you'll find us. You can also interact with us at any time. You can drop me an email, fatcat at iinet.net.au. SMS or give me a phone call on 0427528467. And as always, you can follow us on our website, which is fatcatmedia.com.au. That's where you'll find all previous episodes of the Road Less Travel podcast and a little bit about what we've been up to and some of these services and such like that we provide with Fat Cat Media. Interacting with us, you can do that, of course, on the social media platforms such as Facebook and Instagram. And uh, that's where you'll find us on Instagram with the Road Less Travel Podcast 2021. I thought we'd talk about the outback. The last couple of episodes, we've been sort of hovering around uh, Melbourne. We haven't been able to get out due to illness. So this week, we decided stuff it let's get out there and check out the outback of australia it's good weather to do that leave the cold of the uh, southern states and head up to the outback of australia and when i mention the outback what do you what what does it conjure up in in the, in the experience of yourself well when you head into the australian outback for unforgettable experiences you simply just won't find them anywhere else if you imagine of the outback and your image of the outback is limited to vast stretches of flat land and red dirt, then you're probably missing the best part of this unique destination. The outback of Australia is a region that is absolutely diverse as it is vast. It's a place to see really impressive natural wonders while immersing yourself in the world's oldest living culture. You can certainly come to the outback to relax and disconnect, but you can also fill your itinerary with really exciting and memorable experiences that will stay with you forever. And here's just a few of Australia's best outback experiences that I'd really like you to put on your list. And and we've spoken about it before, that's exploring the ancient Flinders Ranges. It's about five hours from Adelaide in the Flinders Ranges. And that's where you'll find incredible rock formations dating back millions of years. There's charming country pubs and rich Aboriginal history. You can take in the view from the best seat in the house in a scenic flight of Wilpena Pound. And that's where you can also soar over the vast Lake Eyre, which is, of course, a glistening salt pan that transforms into a pink-hued lake when it's flooded with rain. You can see the Mars-like landscape of Mungo National Park. It's located in the southwest corner of New South Wales. Mungo National Park feels more like Mars than it does Earth. The ancient landscape there, it really holds insight not only to Australia's geology, but also to the history of its First Nations people. This is the important archaeological site where the remains of Mungo Lady and Mungo Man. Now, they are said to be roughly 40,000 years old. That's where they were discovered. And here you'll find fragile, fascinating sand and clay formations, which were sculpted by thousands of years of erosion. 
And when you mention the word outback, you can't go past Ayers Rock or Uluru. There are countless ways to absorb the beauty of the massive red monolith, Uluru. And whether it's listening about its rich history of the oldest living culture on a guided tour, you can do it dining on in five-star style at the Sounds of Silence or immersing yourself in the award-winning exhibit of the Field of Light. There's simply quite nothing like the incredible part of Uluru and Katachiana. You can connect with living history too, and one of the best ways to experience the Australia's First Nations culture is at one of the many festivals held around Australia each year. And here you can find commonly um, told stories and traditions that are passed down from one generation to the next. And at places like the Barunga Festival, you'll dance, listen to live music, tour art shows, cultural workshops and much more over three incredible days. And then you can check out Life Underground where you can live underground in Cooper Pedy in South Australia. South Australia's outpack doesn't just have the Flinders Ranges, it's full of plenty of surprises. In the opal mining town of Cooper Pedy, which is just under nine hours from Adelaide, most people live underground in a bid to beat the summer heat. Here you can visit houses, cafes and churches that are all carved into the earth, but perhaps the most immersive way to experience the Cooper Pedy way of life is to, lo- is to actually sleep underground. There's a place there called the Desert Cave Hotel. It's dug into the sandstone hillside in the main street of town. The rooms are quiet and pitch black when you turn off the light, so you're almost guaranteed to get a good night's sleep. You can head over to WA and witness Broom's Staircase to the Moon. One of WA's most mesmerising outback experiences happens only after the sun goes down. Three nights a month between March and October, the coastal town of Broome in the remote Kimberley region is where you witness the unbelievable staircase to the moon. A natural phenomenon caused by a rising full moon which reflects off the tidal flats of Roebuck Bay. And of course, when we mention the outback, you can't go past Kakadu and you can swim in the water holes of Kakadu National Park. It's less than three hours from Darwin and it lies within Australia's biggest national park, Kakadu National Park. With countless ways to experience it, the stream outback destination is perfect for everyone. You can fly over the waterfalls, hike along the rugged cliff tops, discover ancient Aboriginal rock art, or simply cruise along the tranquil billabongs at sunset. And back over to WA where you can step into another world in the Pinnacles Desert. It's a stunning limestone formation known as the Pinnacles and near Cervantes, which is about 250 k's north of Perth. The Pinnacles Loop is found in the Nambung National Park and can be driven or walked in in about an hour. The park can be visited all year round, but there's a bonus too in spring when the wildflowers and the wattles are in full bloom. Back over to the East Coast where you can explore Queensland's Aboriginal rock art, where you can embark on a cultural journey with the local man Johnny Murison as you drive along the widest roads in Australia exploring the 20,000-year-old authentic Aboriginal rock art. As the sun goes down, gather around the campfire, you can listen to Johnny's stories and the sounds of the didgeridoo which echo into the night. There's also a rock art tour which offers day trip experiences or overnight tours with all food and camping equipment provided. So all you basically need to do is bring a small bag bag to take yourself. So just some of the places you can go when we mention the word outback. And there's some of the popular tourist destinations that you'll find when you go into the local tourist authority or jump into the visitor centre. But this week, the destination that we thought we'd take you on is the Madigan Line, the the original Madigan Line trip. And I guess too, it's with a modern update. What's it all about? 
Well, in 1929, Dr Cecil C.T. Madigan undertook a series of aerial reconnaissance of Central Australia and in 1939 followed this up with a scientific expedition into the Simpson Desert. Now, the Madigan Line is now a popular but extremely demanding desert expedition. Now, C.T. Madigan's expedition crossed the desert in 25 days with a party of nine, pioneering the use of mobile radio communication and making extensive zoological and botanical collections, which included 14 new species of spiders. The geology of the desert was also recorded at this time, and it was the first scientific examination of the Simpson Desert and only the second complete crossing by a European. Madigan's expedition was financed by A.A. Simpson of Adelaide, and his book of the journey is titled Crossing the Dead Heart. Now, if you want to find out more information, you can look at archival film of the exhibition through the State Library of South Australia. And viewers are advised to, we'll put that link up on our, um, in the show notes, that the film contains footage that shows Aboriginal people who may have passed away. And I guess for a more modern take on the Madigan line, crossing in four-wheel drives, you can do it with an incursion or, or excursion, rather, to Geosurveys uh, Hill. Now, as many of the iconic four-wheel drive tracks and destinations around Australia become more opened up and easily accessible, there are still some that retain the real sense of adventure that many of us crave, um, where you pit man and machine against the outback, leaving the pressures of modern life certainly well and truly out of mobile phone range. So if you're looking for a real off-road challenge, true solitude, and I mean true solitude, Desert camps, scenery straight out of your wildest dreams and some of the most awe-inspiring night skies you're ever likely to see, then step this way into the footsteps of C.T. Madigan. So as I said, named after explorer Dr. C.T. Madigan, who made the trek on camels in 1939, the Madigan line is regarded, and quite rightly, as we would later discover, as one of the most challenging and interesting ways of crossing the Simpson Desert. Far away from holiday period crowds on the desert superhighway, that is the French line and the QAA line these days, the Madigan line is reminiscent of what those busy routes were like 20, 30 or 40 years ago. So get out and do it while it's still unspoiled. Just make sure that you're very well prepared for anything that will eventuate and it will. It's usually tackled from west to east, so as to crest the dunes from the easier side, we warmed up by heading across the central Simpson from Birdsville to Mount Dare via the QAA and French lines. So day number one, we headed out from Mount Dare along the Bins track towards Old Andando. The track varied greatly be between the rough corrugated sections, smooth bits, big washouts and even bigger bulldust holes that left the following cars bathed in a cloud of beige talcum powder. It was good to be leading, certainly, on that particular leg. We stopped for a look around at the old Andado homestead and surrounding bush camp before pushing on towards the Mac Clark Conservation Reserve that protects rare, if unremarkable-looking, acacia puce trees. Now, it was quite tricky to find the start of the Madigan line because a fence now runs where you would imagine it begins. So given the HEMA mapping and very useful North Simpson Desert Guidebook information, but after a little bit of mucking around and studying the GPS points on various pieces of the electronic gadgetry, we picked up some wheel tracks that headed out towards East Ball. And just past that, we found a great flat area between the trees that became our first night camp on the Madigan line without caravan, I must say. It was a thrill to be finally out on the line in the truest non-computer jargon sense. We were set up at camp by 6pm and 170 plus kilometres from Mount Dare. 
For day two, we broke camp by 9am, veered northeast toward Madigan's Camp 1, taking an hour or so to reach it. Now, Camp 1 is not as clearly marked as the others, having just a metal post with an old bit of strapping tied to it. But we were bang on with the GPS mark and we were also carrying the HEMA Simpson Desert map on, in paper form and iPad version plus the Mudmap iPad app for backup and the HEMA Navigator. So we weren't going to get lost. And I really recommend if you're going to do trips like that to be fully prepared. It was another hour to the two rocky outcrops known as the Twins via Camp 2. After lunch, we had a brilliant drive through some sections of eucalyptus forest and the Coolabar gums across the Hale River floodplain. Now, this, I've got to say, is probably one of the most memorable times for the whole trip, cresting June after June, then driving back in a forest country, then back to the dunes. It is four-wheel drive only and fully prepared four-wheel drive as well. You must have ample water and ample fuel and spares. The wheel marks we'd been following took us east and due east for a good hour or so, when the map would have had us veering south, but eventually they headed south, linking with the HEMA map track period uh, before again taking a more cross-country route. We went north between the dunes and eventually swung east, heading directly for the Colson track, in the right direction but on a totally different track from our mapping. So we got the impression that on this trek, the track is laid out by the first groups through each year, and by our reckoning, the research had been about 12 to 15 to 20 groups before us then, so the wheel marks were very well defined. We reached that night's camp at 4.15 and we were now 270 kilometres away from our start point. For day three, it was the latest start on the day. We broke camp at 10am after putting 30 litres of diesel into the main tank to get some weight off the roof as quickly as possible. And it was a great drive, again, pretty much cross country and over some quite soft sand dune tops, reaching the Colson track just after 11am and we were now 280 kilometres from the start. So in many places, there were simply no wheel marks for us to follow, and it was another memorable stretch of the trip. We cruised along the Colson up to Madigan Camp 5, which was bypassing the off-limits Camp 3 and Camp 4 on the Aboriginal land, and that's where we took lunch there. We picked up some radio chat. Um, I must say, too, there's a dedicated Simpson Desert UHF channel, which is Channel 10, and it became clear there was a group of female travellers. It was obvious they were somewhat lost, so we made radio contact uh, with our group and, out, and went up with them about two kilometres back down the Colson. They turned out to be local girls from Alice Springs out for a weekend joint, so we checked that they had ample fuel and water before setting them on their way. After seeing them off, we picked up the Madigan line once more. It was uneventful run on a section of track that was almost like driving on carpet all the way to Madigan Camp 6 which is a wide open plain and very easy to spot. We found a really great camp spot nearby and we were set up with a beer in hand by 3pm. For day number four, we were back on the track at 9.40. The weather was absolutely sensational. It was just blue skies. Now, there had been rain, so the sand was nice, flat and compact. It was great to drive on. Our plan was to head to camps seven and eight and out to Geosurveys Hill. Shortly after Camp 8, we found the track south towards Geosurveys Hill. It was slow going, all 45 kilometres of it over Spinifex on a fairly faint defined track that took five hours to get there. However, this did include a 45-minute stopover mid-afternoon to let our shock absorbers cool down. It was hard going. It was also a great opportunity to drag out the coffee maker and turn on some pretty reasonable espresso coffee. 
and I can't remember coffee ever tasting so great out in a bush. So by 6pm, we were again set up in a rough camp at GeoSurveys in time for an absolutely monumental, spectacular sunset. We'll take a quick break and when we come back, we'll talk about more about day five on the Madigan Line here on The Road Less Travelled with Nikki Shea. Back with more in just a moment. Fat Cat Media has over 25 years within motorsport media and marketing. Fat Cat Media has the proven knowledge and expertise to help your next event. We have a variety of services available. They are including West MX Coaching and Development Schools, where we conduct schools and clinics across various metropolitan and country clubs throughout Australia. We cater our motocross coaching for beginners right through to intermediate junior riders. The coaching clinics are solely created and catered and also designed for smaller numbers to effectively support each rider and hone in on their particular requirements. Whilst our schools are designed for two days right through to five-day camps with multiple Motorcycling Australia accredited coaches giving individual coaching, drills, training, development and feedback throughout the duration. Our prices for coaching start at $150. With consultancy and advice, Fat Cat Media creates and caters for a variety of platforms, whether it be as a racer or for those within the motorcycle and motorsport industry. Have you considered the future? It is important to focus on what's ahead. Well, is it? Absolutely yes. How do you expect to move forward if you have no benchmark, no goals, no achievements and no strategic plan and direction on how to achieve your goals in the industry? It's mind-bogglingly crazy how folks will fork out thousands of dollars on motocross bikes, equipment and gear yet have no clear plan on how to execute execute their racing year. Prices start at $130. Be inspired with our seminars and motivational speaking. We really enjoy and receive a lot of satisfaction and overwhelming feedback in conducting seminars. This involves giving motivational speeches and inspiring people to challenge themselves and become better at what they want to become better at. Relying on years in the media plus a life-changing health issue, Nikki will challenge and transform her audiences. If you truly and honestly want to help someone reach their true potential, stop answering all their questions and solving all their problems. Prices start at $130. With over 15 years commentating throughout Western Australia and Australian motocross and motorsports, Fat Cat Media prides itself on providing sound industry knowledge plus versatile media experiences and our commentators can interpret what's happening on and off the track with reliable information obtained from within the industry, when it happens and as it happens. Fat Cat Media's trackside commentators have the ability to develop a perspective on the subject through research, experience, interviews, and of course by attending events. Prices start at $150. Do you have a race resume? Step one of obtaining sponsorship is a race resume and write a biography. Take advantage of our professional writing and massive mailing list of media outlets and sporting companies. You can complement this with professional photography, video or audio clips to send out to potential sponsors or partners. Whilst we do not go out and obtain sponsorship for you, a race resume is the first step for you to build relationships and foster ongoing partnerships with potential sponsors. Prices start at $150. For further information, head to fatcatmedia.com.au or drop us an email, fatcat at iinet.net.au. The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. You're listening to the Road Less Travelled podcast with Nikki Shea. 
Welcome back to The Road Less Travel. This week we are on the Madigan Line and day number five. We broke camp at 9.15am from Geosurveys Hill on what was to prove the most dramatic part of the whole trip. Rather than heading back to Camp 8 on the track we'd come in on, we decided to try and find a track direct to Camp 9. So we'd previously spoken to a group who said they'd done so only a few months before. So the six of our vehicles leaving Geosurveys, we found wheel marks heading in the right direction, seemingly almost directly out of camp. So we decided this had to be the track. Now, after checking at GPS bearings and direction, everything seemed to be right, so up we went. The dunes we encountered early in, in this track, although relatively small, were quite challenging. The track was heading due east, and we really needed to be heading north, but we were sure it would swing around to the right direction eventually. There were strong indications that we were on the right path, with lots of fresh wheel marks and trampled spinifex mounds, but, honestly, this became less and less the case, and the track was showing no sign of veering north. It was very slow going and we stopped for lunch at 3.15, only having travelled 16 kilometres. You do the maths. Continuing on, we eventually saw that the track we were on was not headed in the right direction anytime soon and a totally cross-country route back to the Madigan line was needed. So we turned off and into the Never Never. Now to say the going was slow would be the understatement of the century. Tedious progress over sand Spinifex mounds and timber-ridden stake zones were the order of the day. Speed was down below five kilometres of an hour. Some places you'd get out and walk quicker. It was clear that we weren't going to reach the Madigan line that night, so our new go-to point was some clay plans that were indicated on the HEMA mapping. We staked a tyre on one of the defenders and had to change that wheel, but eventually made our clay pan camp for at 5.50pm for a total of 41.6 kilometres in nine hours. We're only halfway back to the Madigan line, but that clay plan was perhaps the most memorable camp of the whole trip, like a lunar landscape under a brilliant, clear desert sky. We're all so exhausted and elated to be out of that cross-country stuff, even if we knew that it was only temporary. So day six, imagine this. The convoy is at walking pace, with two spotters out front walking ahead, removing possible stakes, me, clearing the path of debris, pointing the directions uh, the drivers in the right direction. This was our modest operandi for much of the drive this day, or at least half of it, as we ground our way forward, picking lines between the scrub, finding exit points over massive dunes, edging closer and closer to the salvation that rejoining the Madigan line now presented. Having set off from our clay pan camp at 8.30 in the morning, we finally intersected the line at 1.30pm in the afternoon with the odometer reading 499 kilometres since our start and having done in excess of 70 kilometres cross-country in some of the harshest terrain Australia can throw up. Now, en route, we had staked a tyre on one of the land cruisers, but whatever, we were there. It was certainly not a hint of exaggeration to say that I fell to the ground and kissed the track on refining it. Not wanting to miss visiting the Madigan Line camp, we headed back to Camp 9 for a quick photo shoot, arriving there at around 3.15pm, just in time to meet a convoy of three vehicles and motorcycles, also heading east along the line. They were the only two groups that we'd seen on the actual Madigan Line. It was different heading due west because the driving was certainly more challenging in that direction. Some of us had to take several attempts to crest the dunes, but given our time again, we'd opt to do the whole trip in that direction. And well, I guess we'll just have to go back there next year. For day seven, the next day, we decided we'd have a two-night camp somewhere and have a bit of a rest day. We did this, and we did actually need it by this point, not that we were 
when we say lay idle, mind you, with several tyres worked on that day across the four vehicles. We learned a hell of a lot uh, about the tyre repair on that particular day. Madigan's clay pan was the perfect spot for such a stopover with plenty of space, even if we didn't have it all to ourselves. But that's the thing about the Madigan line, and it's no exaggeration to say that the French line is certainly the Burke Street by comparison. When the work was done, we enjoyed a leisurely dinner, dumplings in the desert. For day eight, it was a relaxed pack-up. We transferred the 65-litre auxiliary diesel tank's contents into the main tank with the O'Donnell now reading 570 kilometres and left Madigan's clay pan at 9.30am. After the slog of the previous few days travelling, it was certainly a far more cruisier affair with no one needing a second run or anything, no one breaking anything and no punches either, which was great. Camps 12, 13 and 14 passed in relatively quick succession before we reached Camp 15 on the Hay River track. The Hay River southwards felt like a motorway in comparison as we reached speeds we hadn't seen for quite a while. Pushing on to Camp 16, we encountered the trio of cars that we met a few days earlier on the Madigan with several others doing the Hay River trek. Meeting other vehicles and travellers and people so suddenly... We sort of thought it threatened our solitude somewhat, but it wasn't long before I had a big camp on a big open clay pan between camps 16 and 17 with a slightly more challenging section of track just before camp. We were 640 kilometres from Mount Dare and camped that particular night for day eight. For day nine, now we were used to a gentler pace. We decided that we'd head only as far as Camp 17, reaching there by lunchtime and settling in for another terrific layover afternoon, which was 654 kilometres from Mount Dare. We made some chocolate assortment damper, had a magnificent dessert of musket flambéed oranges on wafer-thin crepes, and we joy enjoyed our last fire on the route. Now, fires, I must say, are not permitted in the Queensland section of the National Park or on Adria Down Station. The campsite at Camp 17 was excellent, making a great afternoon and evening, although we were rewarded with a, four, a few slight sore heads the next morning, but that's another story. For day 10... We were on the track by 9.30am and noted that the scenery changed quite dramatically with more greenery, more trees and lots of wide open swales between the dunes. We had morning tea at Camp 18 and made Camp 19 for lunch, which was 715 kilometres since our last opportunity to buy fuel at Mount Dare. It had certainly paid off for us being fuel prepared. After Camp 19, we were on David Brooks's Adria, station, uh, Adria Down Station David had very graciously granted us permission to travel through on the understanding that we would do nothing to jeopardise the organic status of the station and our group took this very seriously, leaving nothing there apart from footprints and tyre marks. That's what you should do. Camp 20 is at the all but dry Kildare waterhole where some cattle looked happier than others, such is the harsh reality of the true outback. Camp 21, now that was tricky to find, but luckily we'd been tipped off about the need to double back after Camp 20 and cross to the other side of the billabong on faint wheel tracks to pick up the route south. Even so, it wasn't easy to find and we eventually made our way along some excellent station tracks to Camp 21 by mid-afternoon. And shortly after that, over one quite huge sand dune, we stopped at the ruins of Annadale, which is another stark reminder of the harsh times in this part of the world in days gone by. We were then 780 kilometres from Mount Dare. 
Now, taking a sobering look around at Annadale, we can only imagine how different the place must have been in the good times of 1939 when Cecil, Cecil Madigan and his party went through. Later, after visiting Camp 22, that was our final camp visit as 23 and 24 are near this Adria Downs homestead and therefore off limits. So we made our camp near an Air Creek floodway and had a celebratory bottle of champagne on the overlooking June at sunset. This was after a big 140-kilometre day plus a warming meal of Bill Stroganoff and a delightful way to cap off the camp visits. Madigan would have done it a, hot, a hell of a lot harder than uh, we did in our Bells and Whistles, Land Rovers, Toyotas and Holden Colorados. For day number 11, we broke camp at 9.45 and still had plenty of fuel in the tank, although we'd come 800 kilometres from Mount Dare. As we made our way back to the QAA line, the biggest issue was ensuring that we were on the right track as there were tracks going off in every direction. Intersecting the QAA line at Air Creek at around 11.30 was a bit of a culture shock. And when I say that, after 10 days of radio silence apart from our own and not encountering bulk vehicles, the QAA line in school holiday period was full on with literally dozens of four-wheel drives going in both directions. You certainly needed our wits about us and that's for sure. As we headed towards Big Red, I was leading the group and with the uh, Colorado a whole lot lighter than when we'd set out a few weeks before, I thought I'd have a run of it. First time on the heart of the two main sections leading up and over, and to my amazement and utter delight, we cruised up and over the first attempt, yay, and that was a final fitting marker for our Madigan trip. All that was left, okay, after playing on the Big Red for a while, was to roll into Burstville for some views, and my, how we enjoyed them, just as C.T. Madigan did at his Camp 25, the Burstville Hotel. So fuel consumption for the 920 kilometres between Mount Dare and Birdsville via the Madigan Line and Geo Surveys Hill. Our Colorado was 160 litres. There was a Defender 110 that took 162, a Defender 130 at 160. There was a Range Rover that took 178 litres and a Land Cruiser 100 series took 210 litres. Wow, it was a fantastic trip. So as I mentioned, we didn't take a caravan, we didn't take a trailer. It was uh, tents. A lot of people decided to use um, swag and you see all matter of... There were some people out there that did take those rooftop tents and it doesn't float my boat. The most important thing is to make sure that you have a vehicle that uh, is fully prepared for such a trip and uh, that means to take spare tyres. Um, we took two spare wheels with us to have punch repair kits. Um, excess fuel, uh, you must take enough fuel to, to look after yourself. We've got an, obviously an auxiliary fuel tank in the Colorado. We took jerry cans as well and we took more than enough water uh, to make sure and, uh, of course, being quite anal retentive about spares kits and uh, looking after ourselves and our vehicle was prime and we uh, didn't take the, didn't take the vehicle. We didn't take the dog on this trip, obviously going through National Park, but it is absolutely fantastic to do such a trip and it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing that I really recommend that you do, whether it's the French line, the QAA line, the Madigan line, the Birdsville track, the Oudnadatta track, get out there and do it and see Australia. It is a fantastic country that we live in and uh, we just simply don't, look at it enough and that's heading out into the outback of Australia. And that wraps up our particular trip to the Madigan Line, also wraps up this week's edition of the Road Less Travel podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. It was about 14 days that we took and it was absolutely fantastic. It was magical and I really recommend that you do it. My name's Nikki Shea. You've been listening to the Road Less Travelled podcast and I hope to catch you out there somewhere very soon on the Road Less Travelled. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Take care.
Bye for now. Thanks for listening. The Road Less Travelled is presented by Nikki Shea and produced by Fat Cat Media.